Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My next guest here on Digging in the Dirt is Sephra Alexandra. Her website describes her as a seed huntress, an endurance race ethnobotanist on a perennial expedition to save the seeds of our wild and cultivated lands. She has fortified a community seed bank internationally on island nations, hunted for rare endangered seeds for seeds of success, and is now taking the lead of Connecticut NOFA's Pollinator Health Initiative, the Ecotype Project. The Ecotype Project is working to amplify the amount of truly local native Connecticut pollinator seed that is available to supply nurseries, homeowners, and farmers with the plants they need to help restore our native habitat, support our local pollinators, and ensure local food security. She has just returned from the inaugural Botanical Expedition, an 87-mile canoe journey down the Connecticut River, planting 500 native plants in pollinator gardens as she paddled for the pollinators. She holds her MAT in agroecology from Cornell University. Welcome, Sephra. It's a pleasure to be digging in the dirt with you, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very big pleasure to have you here. Let's see, there's a whole bunch of terms in your bio I am unfamiliar with, so let's start there. What is a seed huntress? Well, I have to say that I have great reverence for the seeds that still exist out on the landscape and uh, in an effort to want to conserve and preserve as well as multiply them, I've worked in a number of different facets on the international, national, and local scale to go out and hunt for lost heirloom seeds or as in Idaho for the SOS program for rare endangered seeds on our public lands or in areas after natural disasters, helping local agronomists fortify their own community seed banks so that they don't have to hunt for seeds outside of the realms of their island nation. So in all of those instances, I try and serve as a caretaker and steward to make sure that the right seeds are in the right place and that people have seed sovereignty and food security and all of the beautiful things that come with the, I would say, sacred stewardship of seed. Hmm. So how do you identify a seed that's in jeopardy or missing or how that you know you have to go find it? Well, one of the first projects that I did, I'm from Greens Farms, Connecticut, and in the neighboring Southport, Connecticut, um, this used to be some of the most prolific onion lands of all of the East Coast. We were famous for the Southport Globe Onion, and 200,000 barrels used to be shipped each year on sloop sailboats to the New York City markets. So from every hill and valley around here, um, everyone had onions. A blight hit in the 1800s, and onion production stopped. But there was the Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Catalog that had been stewarding the Southport Globe Onion variety. So in an effort to inspire my local community to want to learn about seed saving and just all the joys of the agrarian lifestyle, I took the seed from Baker Creek, which is a wonderful company. I brought it home and have spent the past three years reviving truly local native Southport Globe Onion Seed. An onion's a biennial, so it takes two years actually to go to seed. And so finally, we've harvested for the first time in 130 years, true Southport Globe onion seeds. So I think cool. um, 
every different adventure calls for a different search that we go on. But um, that was definitely kind of where the journey began locally. That's the joy of working with seed and restoration is the ROI of seed is so incredible. Even if you have just a handful left and sometimes there's stories of these great lost crops where one seed is found, the next generation you can get hundreds if not thousands of seeds. So it's a, a true shining light in you know regenerative, restorative ecology and agriculture. That's cool. We went to some place that was islands that you helped somebody with seeds there. How did you identify a place that needed help like this? Well, there is an organization based out of Germany that's called the Crop Trust. And maybe some of you out there have heard of the Global Seed Vault. Some people call it the Doomsday Vault. It's up in Svalbard in Norway. Mm-hmm. And that's where there's the backup of all of our world's field crop diversity. And they did a call out for Gene Bank Impact Fellows. So a Gene Bank is just a fancy word for a seed bank. Um, and I applied in myself and six other fellows were sent to um, some of the, the largest seed banks in the world. Our, our world seed banking system is based off of basically Nikolai Vavilov's center of origin, where crops first emerge is where they express greatest amounts of diversity. And the seed banks that house that diversity, which are our greatest tools of resilience for rebreeding in the face of whatever happens with diseases or pests and so forth, um, are based in those areas. So you see maize and wheat in Mexico, potatoes in Peru, the agroforestry center is in Kenya. And um, you can kind of look at our world map in that, in that way. And so my position, I was sent to the Center for Pacific Crops and Trees, which is the world center of an aeroid staple food crop called taro, Colocasia esculenta. Maybe some of you have had poi in, in Hawaii or something, but it's a, it's a beautiful crop. It has a big root and these big leaves that look like elephant ears, and the entire crop is edible. In 1993, on the island of Samoa, they experienced the taro leaf blight. So within just a few weeks' time, almost 90% of their staple food crop, um, not only for what they eat and what they export, a huge part of their economy, but as an ethnobotanist, I was looking at the imperative facets of it for their actual culture. It's given in rituals of, you know, birth, marriage, death, you know, king's coronations. So the loss of this crop isn't only on your plate, but in, you know, your in how your culture um, is formed around this cultural totem. So when I was there, I got to travel to the Cook Islands, to Vanuatu, New Zealand, and Hawaii, and met with these botanical explorers who, after the blight wiped everything out, they had to go back to different centers of origin, such as Bangkok and find natural blight resistant varieties of taro that then were brought back to Fiji. And all of those different collections is what started the seed bank that houses the world's diversity of taro. And after 10 years, a wonderful man named Tolo Ayosefa rebred blight resistant as well as palatable because you have to have it taste good so that everyone likes to eat it. Um, Varieties which are now housed in their seed bank And the benefit of that is when Nigeria in 2010, for example, faces that same blight, those varieties are able to be deployed because all the seed banks work under a treaty where anything that's housed there has to be able to be shared freely. Um, And you can help stave off starvation and lack of food security in that sense, too. So that was my 
South Pacific. Wow. So basically, the seed banks and this project, like you said, re, sort of rescuing the, the taro of, of this the island, is based because it's there is a disease and the possibility that it could get completely wiped out and you need to repopulate it. That's the case? Well, that, that that's certainly part of it. The the what the um the important part about preserving vast amounts of biodiversity and all of this genetic variation is because we don't know if what's going to happen next is that the climate shifts or becomes more saline or a different pest arise. You never know what exactly those crops are going to face. So just like a painter's palette, the more of the diversity you have from more different parts of the world, mm-hmm. then their embedded genetics have adapted to be able to overcome those different things. So we never know exactly what our what our world agricultural system faces, which is why all these different seed banks that are preserving this, you know, arcs of diversity for our staple food crops is so important. So we can have the breeding material that we need to adapt to whatever happens. So you sound like I could ask you the question that's been bugging me. Is there a problem with bananas? I heard there's a problem with bananas. Oh, a massive problem with bananas. Yes. Um, Musa. So it, when I was in the Cook Islands with the Crop Trust, um, there's this. So crop wild relatives, perhaps some of you have heard that term. It basically says a lot of our food crops that we have now are cultivated and steward from their wild ancestors. For example, corn comes from a small little tiny rock hard grain called teosinte. But after hundreds, if not thousands of years of stewardship for selecting the biggest grains that come out or the variations that you might see, we have modern day maize. Same thing's true with tepary beans. And there's a number of different crops that have that story. And the reason why the crop wild relatives are important is because as these monocultures become weak and susceptible to all of these different things, we have to go back to the crop wild relatives to rebreed in that vigor to make them be able to have defense mechanisms against what they face. But bananas for so long have just relied on um, very few varieties. I'm not so well-versed with bananas, but Cavendish, for example. And they've basically bred these bananas to no longer have seeds. You're hard-pressed to find seeds in your bananas because it's not something that is commercially uh, desirable. Mm -hmm. And so not only are we just using one variety, and that's the same thing that happened with taro, a lot of these plants that are in the tropics are recalcitrant, which means you can't save their orthodox or just that normal dry seed. When we think about tomatoes, for example, we think about what that seed looks like because once the seed dries out, it dies. So a lot of these plants are propagated by vegetative propagation, which means cuttings. And that means they have the exact same genetic makeup as the other. And that's really helpful. Oftentimes nurserymen use that in the horticultural industry to ensure that they have exactly the traits that they're looking for, the big flowers, the whatever, the variegation. But with bananas, what that does is that does um, a genetic depression. So if when they do face something, they can all be wiped out like the taro, which was all wiped out very quickly because it was all very much the same genetics. So when I was on the Cook Islands, they were doing a scouting trip because um, there are still some wild relatives of banana. There's so many different varieties of banana, pink ones and purple ones. But there's a much need for funding and work to go out and regather those crop wild relatives of the banana to help rebreed the vigor and eradicate this problem that monoculture creates. So let's move back to your bio for a minute. There's a term that's used. You're an endurance race ethnobotanist. So fill us in. What is that? 
Well, I also have spent a long time working for Spartan Race. I built them a tent camp to teach people rewilding and the luxuries of nature. And so I've been around the endurance race community a lot. Those are people that run three, six, 12 miles or for three days or marathons. Um, And so that's just more of a reference to the fact that this is a lifelong journey of work that, um, for example, when I was in Idaho uh, working for the SOS program, we would hike um, many, many miles into the deep wilderness looking for stands of these rare plants. And then you find yourself like having to climb up cliff sides to harvest Draba Hitchcockii, which is this really rare Draba that also happens to exist in like the most uh, uh, prolific rattlesnake territory in Idaho. And so oftentimes you find yourself going on physically really arduous, which is what I think is the most fun thing to do type of journeys. So that's where the endurance part comes. And then ethnobotany is really the lens that I look at the work that I do is what the relationship is with people and place and plant. And I, I take the, the role as a seed saver very, you know, seriously with a lot of reverence because we act as, you know, the people of the pinch. My great mentor, Bill McDormand, who has um, seed school, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, teaches people how to save seeds. He says that we're at a pinch in time and we can either watch this massive erosion or stand in as stewards. And when we hold those seeds in our hand, we realize that we are now responsible to help caretake that for all of the ancestors before us, both human and insect and animal, for all those that come after us. So certainly like I feel a great responsibility to do anything I can to help preserve the biodiversity. Even when we think about these people that are saving seeds and seed banks, it's a smaller community than you think, and they need more support than you think. But if we, the more that lands are developed into cities, the more that the wild lands are destroyed, the more we lose all of that genetic variation. Again, back to my experience out in Idaho, you would see plant variation just five feet apart. So even the same species in one area of Connecticut, just those slight ecotones and microbiomes, it changes the species or what's able to be available. So the impetus to help save as much of that diversity, because there's these great stories of you know, seeds on Mount Masada that germinate after thousands of years, you know, nature wants to live and these seeds are these sleeping embryos. So if we can help safeguard some of these seeds ex situ, which is in these seed banks, which means away from the place that they originally are, or like what we're doing with the ecotype project, which is in situ, which means in the soil in place to be able to keep adapting to the climate and the pests, then we can make sure we have the right plants in the right place. And that we, we can help um, safeguard and conserve our wild lands for all that rely on them. Cool. I'm talking with my guest, Sephra Alexandra, a seed expert who is spearheading Connecticut NOFA's Ecotype Project, which is working to increase the amount of truly local native Connecticut pollinator seed that is available to the Connecticut growing community. And before we get to that project, let's talk th- about this boat trip briefly. Um, that you, just, you have a botanical <laughs> expedition you did, 85 miles down the Connecticut River. What was that all about? Explain it to well, us. Well, now I say I'm not a botanist, I'm a botanist. Um, <laughs> Uh, again, harking back to the endurance race facet and my love of the great outdoors and certainly my love of canoeing, um, I wanted to help people understand all of these. You said at the beginning, I don't understand half these words and so many other people don't as well. So I thought I would find a fun way to help articulate them. So I talk a lot about Ecoregion 59 and So you look at um, the EPA made these wonderful maps when people were trying to do conservation, 
you have, you know, the arborist, the hydrologist, the, the soil ecologist, there's all of these different groups and they're all working off of slightly different top- topographical maps. So they said at one point, we need to make a map that we can all utilize together so that we're all working um, in, in the same arena, basically. I mean, if you think about an insect flying over an area, they don't see Connecticut, Massachusetts, they see the riparian areas and the broadleaf forests and so forth. So these eco-region maps help to illustrate that. And where we sit here, or where I am in Greens Farms, Connecticut, um, we are in eco-region 59. Eco-region 59, the Connecticut River, which is this great corridor and pathway that goes all the way up from the headwaters over just the Canadian border up in Maine, all the way down to Long Island Sound, has forever been this hugely important riparian highway. There's many different fancy words for how seeds are dispersed. Animocery is by wind. When you think of dandelion tufts, hydrochery is by water. If you think seeds fall into the water and then they get embedded um, along that alluvial soil or um, anthropochery, which is the dispersal of seeds by humans. So what I did was I took 500 of these native plants. I took nine of my fellow dear friends and explorers and we all went into canoes. We started at uh, the John Ledyard Canoe Club because John Ledyard is a legend worthy of his own right, went on James Cook's expeditions and carved his own canoe and had a jolly old time. I would read his history if you get a chance. And we paddled all the way to the Massachusetts border. But it wasn't until our mile and a half pretty grueling portage in Bellows Falls that we actually entered into Eco Region 59, which is when we started putting our plants into the ground in these wilderness campsites and great people that we worked with as we paddled for the pollinators. Hmm. How did you decide where to put them? Well, um, I actually had to, um, I talked to the Connecticut River Paddlers Association. There's a lot of amazing organizations that work for the conservation um, of that river. And I was able to find a wonderful gentleman who stewards one of the wilderness campsites. And we actually arrived there in the middle of the night because the Bellows Falls portage took so long and woke up the next morning and planted the whole day at this wilderness campsite. And when we were finished, I looked up and there was a bald eagle circling around. And um, that was kind of one of those moments where it was like, you said you were going to do something and you did it. And what we wanted to do was re-imbue that riparian area with all of these important native species so that after they start flowering, that they can send those seeds down the river and make sure that those plants exist for all of our pollinators as they go. And the other place that we planted was Retreat Farm, um, which actually does quite a bit in terms of rematriation and honoring the indigenous um you know, uh, past caretakers of those lands. And so we were able to plant a beautiful meadow there as well. Very cool. I I love it. I think that's a great, great idea. Will it be done again? Oh, absolutely. We plan to paddle um, the entire length of the Connecticut River. So the next one, we will do the section from the Massachusetts border to the Long Island Sound. And then as well, find maybe even a winter paddle Uh, to go from Maine down to where we started in New Hampshire. But we're definitely looking at different dispersal mechanisms and maybe even just broadcasting seed or uh, as long as, you know, working with the conservation organizations and the land trust along the river, it's really a beautiful place. And we were so amazed to see how few people utilize that. But you think about that as that was a corridor of trade. That was, that's a corridor for so many avian species and, Um, and the fish. And it was really just a real privilege to be able to paddle there. And 
you know, we oftentimes say as caretakers and loving the wilderness, we don't just want to take, you know, we want to be able to give back. So to be able to put those plants back in the soil there was really exciting. And I can't wait to go visit them and see how they're doing. It sounds great. Why, why don't we talk now finally about the Connecticut NOFA eco-type project? What, what's that all about and why are you involved with that? What, what's going on there? Because I heard about it first from Louise Washer of the Pollinator Pathway. She said, I love talking to you and it's turned out to be absolutely true. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, the Pollinator Pathway, they have done such a remarkable job. You know, we would go to these different uh, botanical conferences and garden club meetings and all these things. And every time I would see those lovely ladies, the pollinator pathway, a new town had joined. So they really did the hard work and lifting to make so many of the towns around here and now into different states understand the importance of planting pollinator plants for the monarchs and, and for all of our pollinators. And so I joined onto CT NOFA, the Northeast Organic Farming Association, to help lead their pollinator health initiative. And it's kind of counterintuitive, you know, why would a, a farming organization be interested in pollinators? Well, if we think about um, farmers make their money from being able to have high yields, we can't have high yields without the pollinators being present on our farms. So we were working predominantly under a USDA specialty crop block grant where our specialty crop was the seed. And the really interesting thing, as we've talked about Ecoregion 59 and all those other things that I've mentioned, is um, the genetics of place of our specific pollinator species that we find on our landscapes in Fairfield and Bridgeport and Southport and Westport are different from the same that same species in different parts of our country. So oftentimes when we buy pollinator plants, it's a great thing. We don't want to villainize anyone. If you have pollinator plants in your yard, that's great. But the conversation that we wanted to help educate people on is a lot of that seed actually comes from the Midwest and they have different bloom times there and are adapted to different pests. So what we're trying to do is fortify our own production of truly local native seed. And so that actually takes a bit of coordination and brings a lot of strategic partners to the table. So what we first have to do is work with very well-informed botanists. We'll work predominantly with Jordy Elkins at Highstead Arboretum. And there's a lot of protocols that go to wild seed collection, not just anyone. And we certainly don't want to encourage anyone just to go out and collect wild seed because you need permission and you need to know how to identify truly local wild stands, how much that you can sustainably take and so forth. So there's a lot of protocols that go along with that. But the botanist collects the wild seed. And then we work with organic farmers who put founders plots on their, on their farms. So think just like you would grow a row of tomatoes. Now we're growing a row of Joe pie weed or New York ironweed or Rebecca. And then I'll come in as the seed collector, collect and clean the seed and then distribute it to the nurserymen. We've worked a lot with Daryl Newman at Planner's Choice, then through plant sales at the Aspetuck Land Trust and Wilton High School um, and so forth. We're able to actually get these ecotypes into the hands of homeowners and landscapers. And our hope is as we're able to, um, you know, have further funding and bring more species on that we can amplify the amount of seed that we're collecting and multiplying to be able to fortify the Department of Transportation, for example, with seed because they're actually under um, an edict that says if and when native seed is available, you have to use it. And they're very keen to use it. Cool. But the problem is, is we need to make it available. 
Mm -hmm. So just to recap it, you're going out, identifying these native plants that are good for pollinators. You're having them grown out by some people. In some cases, maybe you're even getting them from the wild. And then you're bringing those seeds and you're offering them to the public? Or are you starting them and offering them the plants at different plant sales and farms and things like that? We make sure that we are growing out that seed, that we work with nurserymen who grow out that seed. There's actually um, a bit of uh, a nuance in terms of just wild collecting seed and then being able to distribute it. So we make sure for now, what we do with the seed that we collect from the founders plots goes to nurserymen who propagate it. And then it's those plugs that are made available um, at this point to to homeowners and landscapers and so forth. And we just make sure that um, the species that we bring on, um, again, are covering those different bloom times because this wonderful woman who I heard speak from the South, she said, it's like if you invited a house guest over for a week and only fed him on Monday, y'all. She's like, you can't just have things that bloom in the, just the spring or just the summer or just the fall. So we make sure we're trying to address that spectrum and obviously the different ecosystems as well. Yeah, that's something I've done in my own garden. I realized that that was the case. You know, we grow oh, lots good. of flowers and now we try to space it out and use different species. And it's nice. It's the, it's the way to do it, I guess. So once these things are grown out and, and the plugs are made available, you can tell me that there are certain nurseries out there that have these plugs. And I, you also mentioned schools and stuff that are selling actual like seedlings to people. Is that's the case? Yep. The, the Aspatuck Land Trust, they did a wonderful plant sale this year, both in the spring and the fall, and they'll be doing more plant sales. And certainly through our website, the Ecotype Project, you can see all the people that will be doing plant sales coming up. But what, what they did, which was really helpful, is they did these beautiful design kits that said, if you want to do a mailbox garden, here's how many bergamot to get. And here's how many pycnanthemum or the, the mountain mint to get. And they drew out a design for you so that you not only bought the plugs, but you know how to implement them onto your landscape. And so, yeah, so they, they did a great sale and so did Wilton High School. And we've also created these planting protocols because working with native plants is a bit different than sometimes the annuals that some people are used to working with. And so we've put these um, growing guidelines and establishment protocols to help people, you know, um, have the resources that they need to, to get started with these beautiful perennial polycultures that we're putting back onto the landscape. Right. You got to come up to Bridgeport. We have people up here who want to do this, I'm sure. So you got to get a program going up in the Bridgeport area. Oh, yeah. We just we work with a wonderful um, graduate student at Westcon, uh, Sam Samantha Lipscomb, who put in a beautiful garden at Terrywile for her graduate studies. And all of the extra plants that didn't make it into that garden actually went to the Green Village Initiative's reservoir farm. So they now have ecotypes there. And actually, a decade or so ago, when um, I, I helped to put in some of those um, elementary school gardens with GVI. So I'm a big fan of Bridgeport and I also work for Gathering of the Vibes, running their backstage. So <laughs> So, so do we. <laughs> a lot of time there. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, well, we know the girls over there at GVI and all the ladies I, I know have, have had them on my show, as a matter of fact. So we're, we're speaking to Sephra Alexandra, and she's a seed expert, as you can tell. And we're talking about the Connecticut NOFA Ecotype Project. How do the everyday Joe and Mary uh, participate in this thing? What should they look out to do? And, and, and where can they find more information about this? Well, our website is ctnova.org slash ecotype project. And um, we have, again, those protocols up there, a bunch of different articles um, that can help you get started. Um, 
they can certainly reach out to me. But uh, some other great resources are the Wild Seed Project up in Maine, which is run by a woman called Heather McCargo. She puts out this beautiful magazine. Uh, I think it's quarterly. And there's so many great articles about getting started with natives and the importance of ecotypes and so forth. She's a really wonderful resource. You know, if you're interested in getting into the world of seed saving in general, you know, the book that everyone recommends is Susan Ashworth's Seed to Seed. That kind of goes through each crop and gives you the tips and tricks how to save seed. I think it's a lot easier than people think it is. And once you start to go on that seed hunt, you just see seeds everywhere. And especially with kids, it's so magic and fun to discover as I mentioned before, Bill McDormand, uh, they run, and Bell Star, they run the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, which now, due to our current situation, they have um, Seed School Online. So that's a five-day soup to nuts course that takes you from being a beginner to how you start your own seed company. So um, a lot of great resources out there. So my final question, what's the most exciting part of this work you're doing? Oh, the the sunrise of the new adventure. I think um, it's just, it's extraordinary to watch the ecology of it all. You know, um, Jean Linville and um, this wonderful woman named Abby have been the head farmers at the Hickories, which is uh, a beautiful organic farm out in Ridgefield, Connecticut, run by Dina Brewster, who I know has been on your show. And now she's current executive director of NOFA, but um, of CT NOFA. But so Jean and Abby during this whole season they would go out with a red headlight on, um, headlamp on at night, and they would watch for the night pollinators um, because the Rebecca, they wouldn't see any pollinators on. They said, where, where are these pollinators? So they would go out on this, you know, um, entomological safari in the middle of the night. So, I mean, I think the most exciting part is realizing that expeditions and adventure and the great nuance and safari of ecologies are right in our backyard. We don't have to get on a plane or go anywhere fancy. It's Go outside and just observe what's happening around you because you'll see bugs you can't even imagine what they look like and flowers that are so exquisite. And then look for their seeds, you know, after the flowers dry out, you can discover them and then try growing them on your own. So the most exciting part is getting other people excited about this because it's really just a privilege to help germinate the new, next generation of, of seed enthusiasts. <laughs> Well, I've learned a whole lot today. Thank you so much for coming on, Sephra Alexandra. It's been a pleasure having you. It was an honor. Bye-bye. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 